You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. Brazil is known for its beautiful beaches, lush rainforests, and vibrant culture. However, in recent years, the country has developed more of a reputation for corrupt politicians and kidnapping. In his new documentary, Mandabala, our guest today, Jason Cohn, looks at corruption and class warfare in Brazil as told through the stories of a wealthy businessman, a plastic surgeon who assists kidnapping victims, and a politician whose income relies on a frog farm. Cohn left his job working for the documentarian Errol Morris, sold his car, and at the age of 23 moved to Brazil to make this documentary, which won the 2007 Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. Jason Cohn, welcome to Film School. Well, thank you very, very much for having me. This yeah. is really cool. How, how are you doing today? Is, are you up in L.A.? Is that the, the plan? I am in Los Angeles. Yeah, this is you know, the first time I'm, I'm in Los Angeles for a reason. And it's so <laughs> <tight>. <laughs> this, are you getting a lot of interviews today or going to, an, to, to your opening on Friday? Is that the, the focal point? Yeah, you know, for you know, a kid from Long Island, you know, to come to Los Angeles and do press, first movie, I mean, it's a big deal for me. It's, and well, it's, that, well congratulations know. and welcome here. I mean that. It's it's an excellent film. A kid from New Jersey, how do you end up finding out about corruption in Sao Paulo, Brazil? Well, well, Long Island, but... um, Uh, Okay, sorry about that. Sorry, (laughs) I mean, listen, uh, nothing against New Jersey. It's a wonderful state, but... People from uh, New York say that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, you know, my mom is actually was born in Brazil, and my Argentinian father lived in Brazil and has since 1991. So... And that family was always in, you know, involved with you know, Brazilian business. So when I was deciding to make a movie and had the ability to go down to Brazil where the exchange rate was actually slightly more favorable for making a first-time indie film, it seemed like a good potential place to, to shoot. Um, the crews down there are first world because of an emerging commercial industry, which is really something that's unbelievable in some, Sao Paulo specifically. The film industry isn't as thriving, I think, as, as it could, but the commercial industry is huge, and they've got all of these wonderful film crews. We were able to, to get some really amazing people to work on it. So the film crew is from Sao Paulo? Yeah, they were all all from Sao Paulo, mostly from the uh, commercial world. So they're making TV commercials, is what you're saying? Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, if you go to Cannes for, you know, who goes to Cannes for the advertising festival? But yeah. if one were to go to Cannes for the advertising festival, you'd see the countries that are really represented there, the strongest are you know, the United States, the U.K., uh, Brazil, just as, alongside France and other, you know, really first-world commercial countries. It's this weird little thing that not a lot of people know about, but it's really phenomenal. The, the picture that's painted of Sao Paulo, too, at least by, by one of the people you interview there, is it's an incredibly dangerous city. So, uh, yeah, for sure Sao Paulo is very, very dangerous. There are two kinds of serious crime endemic in Sao Paulo. One is amongst the poor, disenfranchised people that live in the favelas on the marginalized outskirts of the city. Extraordinarily violent. Crime rates are huge. Murder rates are enormous. I mean, and it's very, very bad. This movie, though, doesn't look at that. It actually looks at the wealthy, the corrupt, and the decadent. It looks at the small minority who are represented way outside their numbers in terms of wealth and power in Brazil. 
It's really a movie about, you know, how Brazil has the second highest concentration of wealth in the entire world next to Swaziland, um, a very small African nation where the monarchy, you know, controls something like 70 to 80 percent of the nation's wealth. And Brazil is a country that's consistently within the top 15 wealthiest nations in the world. So it's really about how, you know, disequilibrium of wealth disables societies and how these few extraordinarily wealthy people live in a bubble of security and how corruption on the, the upper echelon enables that society to continue, yeah. perpetuates it. The way you show that in the film, you, you get into, um, there's a lot of threads running through this film, and, and that one of the things that I liked uh, so much about it is you're weaving a story here. It's, you're not moving through one or two stories here. You've got a lot of different elements, and one of them is the one guy that, is it M? Okay, am I getting this right? The, 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 Mr. M? Mr. Mr. M, who's got the car, the bulletproof car, and you show how this is a big industry there, and then you've got this thing which I never would have thought of, and you show that in the very beginning of the film, is these heliports that dot the cityscape of uh, Sao Paulo, and how many, it is the largest collection uh -huh. of private helicopters in the world, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, I mean, you'll see more helicopters fly over the skies of, of New York City, and I believe Tokyo, but the fact is that all of those helicopters are owned, or the majority of them are owned by multinational corporations, and are used for various different reasons. You know, not that one is necessarily better than the other, but in Sao Paulo, you have you know, the largest fleet of helicopters owned by individuals. I mean, these are people that use helicopters like automobiles. They fly from their mansions to their places of work and take meetings at other skyscrapers across the city, popping back and forth rooftop to rooftop. What's amazing is that you know, when I was going down to Brazil to visit my dad a lot, I was noticing how the, the, literally the, the entire cityscape was changed by all of these helicopter pads. I mean, the, the architecture of the city... If you look at all these, because Sao Paulo is so big and it's, it's like a garden of skyscrapers, all these buildings are like architecturally designed around their helipads on the top, and it's like it's incredible view. That was one of the things that initially just got me. Like I saw this weird, futuristic, dystopic city that looked more like a city out of a science fiction film than reality. The reason for this is, just as you described earlier, is that this disparity between the rich and the poor has led to an, a pandemic, an epidemic of kidnappings. Much of your film revolves around this, what happens to people in, that uh, are unable to deal with the, the extreme poverty and the people trying to protect themselves who are the rich. That's why there are people flying around in these helicopters. Exactly. I mean, the impetus for me really was, I had read this story of a plastic surgeon who was becoming famous, one of the greatest plastic surgeons in the world, but he was becoming famous for reconstructing the ears of people who, rich people who get kidnapped and get their ears cut off in the process. This happened so many times within, I think it was three or four years, that there was an article on the front page of the New York Times about it. So this, in, you know, Brazil is, is the center of a lot of plastic surgery innovation. One of the greatest plastic surgeons in the world, this guy named Dr. Ivo Pitangui, but the relationship between plastic surgery and this new epidemic of kidnapping, I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, two uniquely, well, one uniquely Brazilian industry and one universal crime that was growing at an enormous rate. That was really what got me into that story. The procedure he does, he, he takes out your bottom rib, carves it into a new ear and puts it back into your head. I mean, I thought it was yeah. just fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you film that sequence in the surgery? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We we dropped off we dropped off a lot of equipment at the hospital. The 
the night before they sterilized uh, Dolly, our film camera. Uh, we were all in scrubs in the OR. I had sat in on the surgery, uh, you know, with my partner a couple of times. We videotaped it so that we could, you know, we meticulously planned it. I even had storyboards of the surgery so that we could <laughs> really get sweeping motion around it. The lighting was awfully controlled in the style of this wonderful photographer um, named Max Aguilera Helweg. Wanted to shoot it so it would look like, um, you know, a Hollywood movie. Well, much of this film, can I just say, the the, the cinematography is excellent in this film the, you're, the, the people that you had working on this or, or were top notch as you described them earlier um, and yeah how, how did that work too when, when you show up at a, at a place to shoot did you uh, decide where how you'd like to frame it did they work from storyboards or did they have much uh, input on it well did, uh, Mr. I worked really hand in hand with, with Eloisa Passos she became my film school since I, I never went to film school you know, the first day of Photography was the first day I touched a, a film camera, but I knew what I wanted the film to look like. I wanted it to look like a Hollywood feature. I wanted it to use the visual language of, of the Hollywood cinema that I love. I wanted it to feel visually like a, like a science fiction or an action film. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the language. And I'd given Eloisa tons and tons of books and references and movies, and she dug it, you know, because also we were shooting in CinemaScope on Super 16 with these special lenses from the UK, and it was like, a, it's a totally, it was a totally new process, and I mean, the technology behind it is also, listen, I don't know how, I can get really techy and nerdy about the stuff, which, but, you know. <laughs> well, go ahead if yeah, you Yeah, feel like, free, yeah. please. That's, that's, we are called film school, that's the, <laughs> that's the reason. <laughs> well, it, one of the most exciting things for me was, we got these lenses specifically designed by Joe Dundon. Joe Dundon was an old buddy of Kubrick's. I mean, he designed the lenses for 2001. And I was inspired by this movie, uh, I Stand Alone by Gaspar Noé, where he shot anamorphic Super 16, but in a completely different method, where he literally took an adapter from the front of a a projector, put it in front of his his camera, and that simulates the aspect ratio of of CinemaScope, but you can't move the camera because you've got two focusing elements. Uh So we got these lenses that were adapted for Super 16, and it freed us up to, to do dolly movements. We have crane shots. You know, we have a car chase sequence in the movie, and it was all because we were able to shoot like a regular narrative movie. So that was probably, for me, the most, you know, technologically the most exciting part, and that would have never been possible without the new digital intermediary technology, which has since, when we started out the movie, to do a 2K scan would have, you know, that was something that was reserved only for DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. And now that kind of technology is filtered down to the point where it was, it's actually totally affordable. This yes. kind of stuff is super cool for indie films. The last leap of technology that needs to be made is for digital distribution to become wide enough that we, could, we would be able to distribute where we wouldn't have to go out to 35 for distribution. Anyway, that's enough of that techie stuff. No, no, that, that's great. We're speaking with Jason Cohn. The movie is... Mandabala. It says that it's uh, send a bullet, but I, I was reading somewhere where you're saying it, it's just what they say after they're having a drink, too. It could just mean kill it. Is that yeah. Mandabala? I mean, it, the vernacular is, is you know, kind of kill it or, you know, do it. But, you know, in its more violent sense, as it, was, as it would be used, you know, within gangs in the, in the favelas, would be, you know, kill that guy. Uh, you know. Yeah, speaking of um, that, there's, there's uh, is it um, Magrino? The uh, uh-huh. kidnapper, drug runner, and killer, too. It sounds like he's killed some people. How did you meet up with him? It was chance. Yeah. You know, I, had, I, 
we had had a kidnapper who I was trying to interview in a prison, and it was costing a lot of money in bribes, you know, about $10,000 itself. Through in the end, um, I spent four months trying unsuccessfully to get into the prison system in Brazil. And then one day, I got in a cab, talking to the cabbie, who I knew, kind of a friend of a friend. He asked me how things were. I said it were horrible. spent yeah. four months building model cars in my dad's apartment. I'm bored out of my head, and I can't find it. Kidnapper to interview for my film. <laughs> and this was at the end of like four years of making the movie. It was one of wow. the last things we did. And he said, well, you want me to introduce you to somebody? And it was as simple as that. The guy called that night, and he said, uh, what do you need? I said, I need to, to interview a kidnapper. Now, at that point, I would have been fine with your garden variety kind of you know, flash <laughs> kidnapper, the kind of guy that takes you to an ATM machine yeah. overnight you know, yeah. and then takes you again in the morning. But this guy had literally cut off people's ears and, and pulled out their fingernails and was a tur- torturing murderer and was just incredible that he literally fell into our laps. Was there any point that you, having all this uh, equipment around and, and, and all very valuable stuff lying around, did you have any fear for your own safety during your interview with him? Well, actually, after, after the interview with him, the, um, uh, for, the honest truth is for a torturing murderer, he was awfully, like, very, very nice to us. After the interview, we went out for a beer. You know, he even said, you know, listen, you ask anybody around in my neighborhood, I'm a nice guy, everybody loves me, everybody respects me, but you just don't want to know me when I'm working. Um, okay. and, That's and true with a lot you know, of us. We went out for beers, and one of his neighbors saw him, who doesn't like him, um, as it were, because uh, he usually sleeps during the day and works at night because he is a drug trafficker. The, the cops came to his place. He had a video surveillance system around the entire favela, the slum that he lived in, and we saw the police literally come into the favela, stop in front of his house, get out, start circling around his house. He goes, he gets his gun, he tells us to get down. Oh There's my. a huge standoff at his door. It was, it was actually very, very scary. <laughs> oh, I can, well, I can only imagine, yeah. <laughs> now, there's another character in the film, which I think there's a parallel between uh, Magrino, the kidnapper, and is it, uh, I'm going to botch his pronunciation, but Jader Barboslo? Jader. Barbalio. Yeah, not bar- bad. Barbalio? Not bad. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, it was bad. Go ahead. Uh, it was bad. <laughs> but who did you feel more comfortable around, the corrupt politician or the kidnapper? <laughs> oh, there's no comparison. I, yeah. I felt totally at home. and I was literally in the kidnapper's home. His wife cooked us lunch. I mean, he was nothing but, you know, hospitable to us. Jader Barbalio is one of the most notorious corrupt politicians in Brazil, and I would argue probably out there alive yeah. today. Yeah, and he certainly sounds we're, like We were basically in his compound, I mean, his television network, there, you know, yeah. saying that we were doing a documentary about development in the north of Brazil, which is actually true, because, I mean, the movie's actually about the lack of development in the north and his, <laughs> you know, complicity in that. I mean, this is a guy who's laundering billions of dollars, literally stealing the food out of the mouths of the poorest people on Earth. That was a very, very scary experience. At the beginning of the film, it says this is a film that cannot be shown in Brazil. Is is he part of the reason why? Well, the reason why is is that, you know, in Brazil, documentaries aren't protect documentary filmmakers aren't protected on the same laws that we are here, um, whereby, you know, we're kind of protected under the same kind of laws that journalists are protected under. In Brazil, we're not, so one of the... I, I like to fight this, is the truth. Um, I think it needs to be shown in Brazil. Yeah. But, and that's the reason, you know, I, I don't feel so super comfortable about talking about it, because I, you know, I, I think it's worth a fight, um, a legal fight, to, you know, try and get these rules changed. But, um, yeah, we got a letter from a lawyer saying if the movie was uh, shown in Brazil, they'd sue. And as it 
exists right now, they have a case, which is really frustrating. Uh, yeah, they have a case because of the laws in Brazil, not be, not certainly have to any, anything to do with the veracity of what you've said in here. No, 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 no nothing. It's, it's just a character who doesn't want to be in the movie. Which which brings me to another point that you bring up in um, in the film, and I think it's the reason why why Jadar is such a uh, openly he's he's able to openly engage in criminal behavior, which is that there's a law that says. And correct me if I'm wrong. That as long as you're in government, you cannot be subject to civil, to civil prosecute yeah. pro- civil prosecution. And this guy has locked up all the sort of the federal leverage that would be brought. Against. I mean, anyone who could come after him. So well, let's just exactly. talk a little bit about how he's able to protect himself. Yeah, I, nobody's actually asked me about this before, and like you know, and we didn't get into it. We couldn't get into every single detail in the movie. Yeah, but just as an example, one of his practices is that you cannot be arrested 30 or 60 days, I can't remember exactly, before an election. So he was out of office for, I think it was a year or two, and he disappeared. He literally was nowhere to be found. Uh, and there were all these warrants out for his arrest, and that nobody could find him. And then 60 days before the election, he appears. <laughs> and he wins. Yeah. Now, now, did did that mean that he, and I don't know how it works in Brazil, yeah, I assume like you do in America, you have to file your candidacy. So did he suddenly appear, you know? No, I'm sure 60 yeah, days before. 60 days, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, so he's <laughs> he's completely gained the system, and I've got to believe that it's an open secret in Brazil. Everyone knows that he's getting away with essentially a vast amount of corruption, right? I mean, is it, does anyone yeah, really know? knows about all of the corrupt politicians in Brazil. I mean, right now, there was, you know, I was listening to the radio yesterday on the BBC, and they were talking about how this very large corruption scandal that happened over the last two years called Mensalon, uh, involving Lula, which I think is qualitatively different. It's more of a signal of how institutionally corrupt Brazil is, but it's not the kind of corruption that engenders poverty, poverty in the same way that Jader does. There were 40 politicians, I mean, many of them were caught on tape accepting bribes, Everybody in Brazil, and including and I, would be horribly surprised if any of them went to jail for it. Yeah, you know. And then in the, you know, I was so infuriated this morning because I'm reading the New York Times. There's an article about one of the single most important primatologists in the world, who's uh, a nationalized Brazilian, doing research on monkeys. He's discovered five different species of monkeys in the Amazon, including a completely new genus, and he's being put into prison for 17 years. Wow. There's something called biopiracy, bio which is just the most bureaucratic nonsense in the entire world. And now scientists are even scared of doing research in the Amazon. Meanwhile, people like Jader and all these unbelievably corrupt bureaucrats continue reigning with impunity. I yeah. get furious about this stuff. Now, now, is there any sort of political leverage that can be brought to bear? It sounds, from the film, uh, it's obvious that Jada, and by the way, we're speaking with Jason Cohn, and the film is called Manda Bala. Is there any sort of leverage that can be brought to bear on these people? Uh, are they so susceptible? Are they so poor that they can just be, their votes can be bought? Is there some other mechanism? I know there are people that you highlight in the film, great civil servants, people who are really trying to do the right thing, but what kind of a mass recognition on the part of the, the populace? The that, yeah. That's the hard, it really is the hardest question to answer, you know, because I, I'd like to, more than anything, to believe in progressive civilizations or progressive ideas of civilization, things that, you know, will be getting better. But, you know, as of this second, you know, shy of just 
recontextualizing the, the idea of corruption, which is what I was trying to do. I don't know. I mean, I think it's first off important that people take corruption seriously, that people look at corruption not as an act of theft, but an act of political and social violence. You can't steal $2 billion from the poorest people on earth and expect there to be no social, you know, ramification. That stuff, I mean, that's like, you know, basic 101, I think, that has to be laid down. Corrupt politicians cannot continue to be allowed to get away with these crimes because it's not just stealing money. Yeah. It's killing people and lots of people at that. Yeah. Mm. I think that that would be a really good start. You know? yeah, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> One more question before we go. I love the uh, the frog scenes, oh, yeah. and, and they <laughs> they just tie the whole film together. Yeah. I especially like the the sound of of wet frogs going down a chute. Did you are, were you conscious of grabbing that sound? Because it's it's just um, <laughs> it sticks with you. Yeah, it sticks with me. I never heard a wet frog going down a chute, especially like hundreds of wet frogs going down a chute. <laughs> you know, I mean, we I was very very interested in in creating you know our own unique sound design for the film i wanted it all to be real production sound although you know in the end in the, when you're doing your mix i mean certain sounds obviously can't be reprodu- need to be reproduced because yeah. of lots of different issues but um you know that scene you know the first time i you know i would go back to errol morris a lot you know just to uh-huh. show him all the new footage and show him cuts and the first time he saw that you know because you see all of these frogs at about 100 frames per second, really super slow motion, going down a tube on their way to being killed, and one falls onto the rim of yes. the basket that they're falling into, and then you think it's, he's about to get out, yes. and he falls back in, and, and Errol was, Errol, the first thing he said is like, you know, that frog, it's kind of like every single person in the world. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you think yeah. you're about to get out. And then, you know, you just fall right back in, and you're just like everybody else. <laughs> That's so funny. That, yeah. that, that, stuck with, that stuck with me when I watched that frog yeah, just teetering on the edge of that barrel. And Well, I want to thank you very much for, for being here on Film School, Jason Cohn. Uh, the film is Manda Bala. It's opening this uh, Friday in Los Angeles. And congratulations on a terrific yeah. documentary. And good luck to you on all your future projects. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.